Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to share your word and to learn together today. Lord, we know that there is uh, so much that we need to know in preparation for your return. Lord, we really want to be ready when Jesus comes. We want to represent you aright in this time between now and when he returns. We want to live for you. We want to represent you. We want to honor you. We want people to be ready also that we know that we love when you come. And I pray, Father, that you will bless our discussion and our uh, learning now through the working of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had the privilege uh, as a young man at Pacific Union College back in the mid-1970s to, um, to not only be a, a student of theology there, but also to be a member of the Pacific Union College Church. And the pastor at the time was a man by the name of Morris Venden. How many of you have heard of Morris Venden? And I think uh, many of you will know that he recently passed away. And uh, Morris uh, Venden uh, was a teacher of righteousness by faith. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what form righteousness by faith should look, take, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, that was a major emphasis of his. And it's not particularly what I'm sharing with you today. What I'm sharing with you today is, uh, is related but indirectly related. The Bible talks about, talks about righteousness by faith, right? And it is, uh, it is the theme of the Scriptures. What I want to share with you is that there are some parallels in the Bible that are times ignored in our study of the Bible, and for that reason we miss out a lot on what God is trying to teach us and what He wants us to know and what He wants us to, uh, to learn. In the process, we're finding we're not going to be ready for the return of Jesus because we're focused not on the things that are important that the Bible makes clear to us are important, but the things that we think are important, and that's not the case. That's my little personal connection with Morris Venden. He came uh, out with a book not long after that entitled From Exodus to Advent. And how many of you have seen this book? Anybody? Okay. All right, Steve, you've seen it. Good. Um, a fascinating study, and he himself, I'm going to actually read a part of the introduction because I can't just relate it. You have to hear what he has to say about it. And, and his introduction to why he wrote the book. And, and it goes back a step farther from him. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to back up for a moment and I'm going to share with you this little bit. Now, I don't know that this book, I don't think this book's in print anymore. I don't think you can get this book anymore. But there is a thing called Amazon. And from what I'm able to tell, Amazon has all that kind of stuff. And I didn't look to see if it's there. Um, there's also Leaves of Autumn. I don't know if they have some of these kinds of books or, or whatever. But you go and Google it, and it's probably out there somewhere in one form or another. 
But this is what Morris Venden says at the beginning of his book, and I think this is the part that is um, a fascinating setting for this. He says, have you ever wondered how long it will be until Jesus really comes again? How long can we keep saying that his return is right upon us? Why are we still here? Will God finish his mission on earth? Will he cut it short? Or is God's final conclusion to his great plan contingent upon what we do? Will there come a time after which God will wait no longer, regardless of what we do? What is the purpose of church organization? How does God look at offshoots, fanatics, fringe movements? Is the God of the Old Testament as much a God of love as the God of the New Testament? Is the theme of salvation by faith in Christ only a new con New Testament concept? So he asks all these questions, and then he shares the foundation for what he wanted to share at this time. Now, I graduated in 1977 from Pacific Union College. I also was married in 1977 to my present wife. I also joined the Michigan Conference at that time. All of those, if you do the math, add up to 39 years of time, okay? In 1980, he came out with this book. So it was shortly after um, my wife and I were at Pacific Union College. And this is what he says. I've got my connection back to college. And then he says this. When I was in college, that was Morris Venden, our Bible teacher walked into the classroom one day carrying a pile of syllabus-type books, thick, mimeographed, obviously unpublished. He told us that they would be of benefit to us, and I, along with the rest of the class, bought a copy. Now, how many of you remember the mimeograph days? <laughs> so you can just, you almost smell that stuff, can't you? And uh, came in, it's not a published book, obviously, it's eight and a half by 11, you know, somewhat like what I just handled you today, except you're not getting the whole thing. He had this whole thing handed to them, or at least held up before them and then encouraged to buy it. The author, he said, was Taylor G. Bunch. And if you look at the material that I gave you, the first page indicates that this material was written by Taylor G. Bunch. Carried the title, The Exodus and Advent Movement in Type and Antitype. At first glance, it appeared exceedingly dry. My copy ended up uh, on the bottom shelf and stayed there for years. Uh, this, I find this very interesting. But one day, prompted by a growing interest in the subject of salvation by faith, I took the book from the shelf, dusted it off, and began studying. I discovered it to be a most fascinating study, for we as a people are repeating the history of ancient Israel. His study answers the questions of why we are still here, what will finally bring us to the heavenly Canaan, and what is God's purpose for his church. We also find a great emphasis 
on the mighty love of God and on the teaching of salvation through Christ alone in the Old Testament. The syllabus that I have is no longer available. That was 1980. But there are such things as Google and technology out there today, and the computer provides an opportunity for you to be able to find this material again, in spite of the fact that you would think it might be lost. He says, I'd like to suggest, though, that you, if you wish to pursue the study personally, that you read the following material, the first five books of the Bible, Patriarchs and Prophets, the chapters that deal with the exodus in Egypt, from Egypt through the, to the entrance into Canaan, and the book of Christ Our Righteousness by A.G. Daniels. Daniels, using mostly inspired material, shows how we, too, have journeyed in a spiritual wilderness. To admit that we have aimlessly wandered, trying to learn our lessons of faith and trust, is an ego-deflating experience to our denominational pride. Perhaps as a church we have been slow to face that possibility, but let's not get bogged down in the problem of thinking about the church as some, uh, being some giant impersonal movement. The church consists of individuals. Therefore, when we discuss the church, we're talking about ourselves. We must get rid of the idea that when we study this subject, we're taking pot shots at our leaders. For too long we have thought of the church as being a group of administrators. We are the church. Interesting introduction to this idea of what he's trying to lead us to and what he wants us to be able to understand. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'm using my electronic version, and I hope that's okay. I don't particularly care for it, but it uh, kind of works for me right now in, in uh, what we want to do. And um, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 sets the stage for us in what we want to share. And Morris Vanden uses it, and so does Taylor G. Bunch. And then we're going to take a look at this material that he gave to, uh, that I've given to you today. And I'll explain a little bit more of that. Make sure that the sheet gets all the way around. That gives you an opportunity to sign your name and give your address, because I want to make sure that I have that from you. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at the first verse to start with there. This is what uh, the New King James Version says of this, uh, in this passage. Moreover, brethren, I, would not, I, do, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all past through the sea. Now, you all know this passage very well. Someone who has this, read verse 2 for me, please. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, someone else. All ate the same spiritual food and huh? all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Great. And verse 5, please. Someone else. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Six, please. Now these things occurred with examples to keep us from sticking our hearts and evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. 
Excellent. Verse 7, please. And do not become idolaters, as they some of them, as it is written, the people set down to be the joke and rose up to God. Verse 8, please. Let us commit fornication as some of them did, and fell one day to the multi-value. Verse 9, someone else, please. Neither let us tempt God, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed. And then verse 10. Now we're getting around where someone may have already read, so I'm not too worried at this point. Verse 10, please. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And now verse 11, please. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 11 ties this all together. Paul is not just telling us that this was shared for with us for the purpose of giving us a history lesson. But Paul makes it clear that what he was sharing here was reminding us that what God has given us in the past is in order to give us examples so that we have an example to follow before Jesus returns. For those who are living, he says, at the end of time, for upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Does that mean you and me? It does mean you and me. It means that there is counsel here. There is encouragement here. There is instruction here. There is admonition here. There is correction here. But sometimes we just read it as history. And we don't stop to look at it very carefully. We also forget a very important principle of studying the Bible and of Scripture. And we recognize, uh, fail to recognize the lessons that we want to learn from there. There's a passage uh, in Patriarchs and Prophets that says this, God would have his people in these days review with a humble heart and teachable spirit the trials through which ancient Israel passed, that they may be instructed in their preparation for the heavenly Canaan. Are we looking forward to the heavenly Canaan? Amen. You and I are living. I, I did you. How many of you heard Elder Gallimore's sermon on Friday night? We are living in the age of deception, but we are also the people that God is preparing for that return. And, and the reason that we are living in this age of deception is because Satan is determined that in these last few moments, and I really want to emphasize that word, these last few moments that he has, that he must work seriously hard to deceive the very elect if possible. And yet God has provided us the foundation that we need but the foundation we need is in the Word of God. And it is there that we can find through not superficial study, but through in-depth study, the, uh, a, the experience that God wants us to have. 
In Testimonies, Volume 5, she says, Satan's snares are laid for us as verily as they were laid for the children of Israel just prior to their entrance into the land of Canaan. We are repeating the history of that people. This material that I have given you here is, um, is the first couple of chapters from from this, uh, this material that Taylor G. Bunch uh, wrote a lot of years ago. And I want, to, uh, I want to share a little bit of some thoughts with you from it and also from the Word of God as we look at uh, this today. The first paragraph gives you the foundational background to what Taylor G. Bunch was doing. Very interesting, we live in Michigan. We often for, we re think of the fact that we're a world church. And uh, I just met a friend of, friend of mine from my early youth, somewhere around two to four, Mervyn, somewhere around there. And uh, he remembers holding me back in uh, those dark age to, ages time a friend of uh, my parents especially, and uh, comes from South Africa, born and raised there, right? Yeah. Served as a pastor not only there, but also here in the States. And we're, we're a world church, aren't we? We are a world church. A world family, exactly. But we forget the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a lot of root. We don't in Michigan that much, but... Sometimes even in Michigan, we get a little careless about the fact we've got a rich history right here in Michigan. And here's what Taylor Bunch tells us. He says that this material, not, not he, he didn't write this part of it, but uh, the person who produced this says, the series of 36 sermons on the parallels between ancient and modern Israel and the Exodus and Advent movements were delivered during the Sabbath afternoon Vesper services in the Battle Creek Tabernacle. They were, are being published in this form for the special accommodation of those who heard them and also because of requests from ministers and other gospel workers who desire them. This series is of special value in meeting apostates and divergent movements and in establishing Seventh-day Adventists in the faith once which was once delivered unto the saints. Here is, to me, the important key. This is the material that Mar uh, Mervyn Maxwell, I'm Mervyn Maxwell, that Mars Venden was handed when he was a college student. It's the same material that I also discovered as a result of that, recognizing that this was the foundation to what uh, Morris Venden was sharing. And I'd like to share some of those things with you. It's 250 pages long. And I think we can get that done in, in a week, maybe the first chapter or two. <laughs> uh, here's what I'd like to do. You put your name on that, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to provide you with a whole manuscript, and I'm going to mail it to you free of charge when I get back from camp meeting. Okay, I'm not going to provide it to you now, but for our study, we're going to look at some key chapters 
and key parts of the study that Taylor G. Bunch did. And you'll get my reflections on it as well, not just Taylor. I'm not just going to read it to you. You can read it yourself. You can do that. You wouldn't come here to have me read you a, a, a lesson. But together, let's plumb the depths of this experience of the children of Israel coming out of the uh, time of captivity in, in uh, Egypt and making their way from there to the promised land. And the whole experience that is, is in there, the details that help us to look more closely, not only at the journey, but especially where we are in this time. As I go through this material, I find that, that uh, I see things happening now that weren't happening 30 years ago or 39 years ago when I came to Michigan. And I ask myself uh, in this time, what is the Lord trying to prepare us for? And how is this understanding going to, number one, draw me closer to Jesus Christ, and number two, prepare me for his return and help, number three, me to help others be prepared for his return. So let's look at the first chapter and get a little bit of an idea of what was established. When Taylor G. Bunch handed out this material, he indicated that, um, that he had a purpose in mind in sharing this and what the purpose of the of the, the series was. The purpose of the series, he indicates, and, and that's the title of his first chapter, he indicates that what the reason for sharing this was, was because he wanted to help his members in Battle Creek at that time to understand where they fit in in prophecy and to give them the sense that they are living just before Jesus returns and to give them confidence in the understanding of the prophecies. I'm telling you today, folks, we need this. I don't know where you are in your personal journey, but when the Pope came to the United States last year, uh, my wife happened to see a couple things pop up on the Internet and I went and looked at them and stomached about as much as I could of it from individuals that were disgruntled Seventh-day Adventists and left the church. And they were saying things like this. They were saying, well, you know, those Seventh-day Adventists, now these were people who used to be Seventh-day Adventists. Apparently there's some special, don't go looking for it. Apparently there's some place out there, because I don't even know that I could go and find it right now if, if I wanted to, and I don't. But I read just enough of it that these people were saying things like this. The Seventh-day Adventists right now are probably trying to make a big deal of the Pope coming here and trying to tell us that that's a fulfillment of prophecy, yada, 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 yada. They stated it. They must have That's exactly, you know, I, I looked at that and I said, you know what? Nothing like trying to justify where you are in this whole situation, right? I just, I about fell over when I, when I read those kinds of thoughts. But you know the truth is, there, there are those, of course, who are having that kind of an experience, who have left the church because they didn't find Jesus, and that's not because Jesus isn't in the church, and that isn't because Jesus isn't being preached. That's because they got off on the wrong focus, 
and they needed to find Jesus. And that's part of what, what Taylor G. Bunch was seeking to do with his church family. He was wanting them to be able to see in the prophecies that Jesus was seeking to reveal himself, that Jesus was seeking to help his people um, recognize what to expect when the time of the end came. He was trying to not only help them to have an experience with him, but an experience that would prepare them to be strong enough through the time of the end. And he had worked with Jesus, had worked with his children coming out of the captivity in Egypt. And that whole experience parallels, because Ellen White clearly said that in that statement from the testimonies, she is helping us to understand that the kind of experience that was happening there is the same kind of thing that God's people can expect at the end of time. Now, there's some technical terms that will help us with this, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But there's a quotation in this chapter at the beginning from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 to 19. I'm going to read it right out of your manuscript there so that you can, you'll see where it is and you can read it. He says in verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Sorry about the separations here, but I got 250 pages of the material, and, and for some reason the Bible verses in this material that I give you were not right, not justifying the, the chapters quite right. So I apologize for that if that's happening. I tried to correct some of it, and I think it's actually corrected in that section there, but there are other places where you will see that. So it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. That's what Jesus wants for us, right? Paul was helping us to recognize that's what we need in our personal experience with him. As we look at the Word of God, we begin to realize that God wants for us a personal knowledge of him, a personal knowledge of his truth, a personal knowledge of the events that we are experiencing, what we're seeing around us. And he wants us to be ready and recognize that the truth that was given back centuries, literally centuries ago, is present truth for us today when we understand it as God wanted it to be known for us. If you look at, I believe it's page five, I think everything's worked here. I've got a working copy of this and a copy that I printed out, so I'm hoping it's all working out that way. Near the bottom it says, Books of, uh, Books of Parallels. You see that? There are two really key words for us in understanding the study that we're going to have for the next few days. That words are types and antitypes. You're familiar with those words if you've been in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for any length of time. But you know what? I'm not sure I've heard a sermon on types and antitypes for a while. Uh, maybe it's kind of lost its, uh, its glamour, whatever that would be, <laughs> or its interest. But it is important for us to understand what that is in relationship to the Scriptures. Types and antitypes. Types are those things that... Um, are kind of like symbols 
for us. The word symbol isn't exactly the word I would like to use with that, but the types are like Adam, for example, or Enoch and Elijah, or Moses and Noah, as he points out here. These are individuals who had an experience that has some connection with our own. Adam was a type of Christ, but he wasn't Christ, was he? But there was something about the experience of Adam that helps us to understand a little bit more about Christ. The, one of the greatest parallels consisting of types and antitypes is found in what we call the Exodus and the Advent movements of ancient modern Israel. You know about one of the types that's very clear. It's Adam, right? I mean, not Adam. It's the lamb. But types are not the same as what it is a type of. If it were identical, then a lamb, would Jesus would have to look at exactly like a lamb, right? So they're not identical. They're not exactly the same. But there is a part of it that helps us to understand that role. So if, if the lamb is a type of Christ, what is it that the lamb teaches you and me about Christ? Tell me. I'm sorry? Spotless and gentle. What else does it teach me? Okay. Sacrificial. What else? The sacrifice and its relationship to the death of the Messiah who's going to come. You know, the great tragedy of Israel at the time that Jesus was on this earth was the fact that they had all the sandbox lessons they needed. It was like kindergarten for, for, for a lot of people. You know, in kindergarten, you do stuff in a sandbox. When I was in kindergarten, my Sabbath school class had a sandbox in it. Any of you have that? And in that sandbox, we would put little figures and we would get stories. Well, the, the, the experience of the children of Israel with the sanctuary was just like that, wasn't it? It was a big sandbox lesson out in the desert. Sorry about the analogy. But it was that part of a lesson for the people to learn about what was coming in the Messiah. But the tragedy is that when the Messiah came, they had forgotten the lessons and their focus was in what they wanted to know and what they wanted to experience rather than what Jesus wanted them to experience. The parallels here are helping us to understand some of these experiences that God wants us to have. I'm continuing on down, and I'm just going to let you try to, I mean, continue to follow through with me. I'm going to hit some of the points. I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to hit some of the points as we go through, and you will be able to have it. I'm currently on page 6 um, in the section Ancient and Modern Israel. The Exodus is typical in other words, a type of you and me, the gathering of Israel out of Egypt, um, out of spiritual Egypt, and going into Babylon. Now, I'm hitting the, in, the, in the purpose section of, this, uh, of our study, we're looking at some of the overall pieces that we're going to look at in detail. 
it's 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 superficial to just simply say, all right, it's a type of uh, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt is a type of uh, of the experience of God's people leaving, okay, uh, you know, coming out of Babylon and preparing for the return of Jesus Christ. That's superficial because within that, the question you have to ask yourself is what was the depth of the experience that the children of Israel had in Egypt? You've, you've got to go back and look at the, the details of that experience and then ask yourself, what would it have been like to have been there? And what was the significance of that experience that the children of Israel had in, in, uh, uh, when the lamb was slain at the Passover? What was all of that for, you, for me today? And what is God telling me about the experience that he wants me to have in preparation for his return? We have parallel movements. I've heard a couple of times on the seminar grounds today, I mean, so far, especially from uh, Sean Boonstra. We are a movement. How many of you believe that? We are a movement. This is not just a continuation of the Reformation. We are not just Baptists, and Baptists are wonderful people. We're not just Lutherans. We're not just Methodists. And I don't know if you watch what's happening in the news these days about these various church denominations, but there's some really tragic things happening in these denominations. And we are foolish if we believe we're immune to some of those challenges. One of those challenges I read about here just recently was the Methodist Church about three or four weeks ago. They had their general conference session. And it hit the, hit the news. I think it was on CNN and I saw it. And I get my CNN news from my computer. So I saw a flash there and it caught my attention and I looked at it. And that, that, that flash paragraph was that the homosexual agenda was coming to the Methodist Church in their general conference session, and I believe it was held in Oregon. And they were the, the ministers of the Methodist Church that were um, publicly uh, proclaiming the, that they were homosexual and that they supported homosexuality. They were going to bring to the floor of the general conference session of the United Methodists and that's a huge denomination in the United States. You understand that. And that they were going to say, go ahead, fire us if you dare. And uh, so I saw that clip. And I asked myself, all right, I wonder what's going to happen with this. And I was talking to somebody else a couple weeks later, and I said, anybody happen to catch what happened after that? And they said, uh, yeah, they'd heard that they'd done whatever. So I went and looked a little farther. And, and here's what is my understanding that has happened in that denomination, is that they decided that they were going to, uh, the, the, those who had the agenda, the homosexual agenda, decided that it was pretty clear that they were going to lose if it went to the floor right at that time. 
So they took it out of going to the floor and that they were going to take it back into a committee and that they were going to come up with a recommendation of how they were going to be able to move this ahead and handle that. Now, I understand it still at some point happens to come to their, to their general conference session, but I understand that their recommendation is going to be that they divide the United Methodist Church into three parts and that, that one part will be able to accept this and then the other part may not be able to and all of that. We're not just another denomination. We are a movement that God has called for this time. We are the ones that God has told to preach the three angels' messages and to teach the three angels' messages. But most importantly, to live the three angels' messages. How does that fit in? What is the parallel movement of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt have to say for me in what I'm facing during this time and what you are facing during this time? What's the parallel in the, in the Adventist movement to the children of Israel putting the blood on the posts? going through the plagues, that whole experience of coming out of Egypt and being delivered at midnight. What's the parallel movement that God has uh, in terms of uh, its connection with us today? I like the fact that uh, Taylor G. Bunch points out um, in the next section there under parallel movements, I'm still on page 6, and he uh, speaks there of the remnant. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 12. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 12. All right, I'd like someone to read that passage for me, please. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 11, I'm sorry, verses 10 through 12. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's and verse 12 as well, if you would. We'll raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. We will assemble the scattered people of Judah in the four quarters of the earth. How many of you believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is that remnant church that God predicted would be? How many of you believe that today? You and I must be firm in our understanding. I'm not just talking about the remnant spoken of here, but I'm talking about also the remnant spoke of in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. The remnant that clearly is portrayed in the outline of the history that Jesus gave to John in Revelation chapter 12. Verse 16 of Isaiah, here by the way, go over to verse 16 of the same passage. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. The remnant church. God has always had a remnant. 
when the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, who went into the promised land? The people that escaped from Egypt or their children? It was the remnant that went in to the promised land. The message that you and I have today is that we live in a challenging time. The idea of a remnant, you know, that we're, it's very easy for us to get really excited about the fact that there are 19 million, 20 million Seventh-day Adventists today. I don't believe that God is looking to see when we reach 20 million or 25 million members, and then he's going to say it's time for us to come, for him to come back. Jesus is looking not for a number. He's looking for a people. That number may be two people, like two spies, that actually lived through that whole experience and went into the promised land. What is it about their journey? What is it about their personal experience? How does that affect my life? How does it help me to understand what God is trying to do in my life? And that God really does want a remnant that is faithful to Him, that is willing to stand up for Him. You know, when you look at all of this, doesn't it look to you like maybe you look back and... How many of you have heard that there's a shaking coming? You've heard of that? Was there a shaking when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and made their way into the, toward the promised land but didn't actually get to go in the promised land? How did that all fit in together? What's the shaking going to look like for you and me? What is this going to translate? These are some of the things that we want to look at as we take a, a, a journey with the children of Israel of old and bring it into the Israel, the modern Israel of today's time, where is God leading us in all of this? If you've got, you got your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter, I say if, in Revelation chapter 15 is the song of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 15 and... We're going to look at verses 2 and 3 here. Someone else read verses 2 and 3, please. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven, seven angels having the seven last plates, for in them was the wrath of God with God. For in them the wrath of God was complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing in the sea of glass, having hearts of God. That's right. Verse 3 as well, please. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, and us. Thank you very much. Ellen White says on, uh, in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 289, that uh, Taylor Bunch quotes here. He says, That song does not belong to the Jewish nation alone. It points forward to the destruction of all the foes of righteousness and the final victory 
of the Israel of God. You and I are preparing for that victory celebration of what God wants for you and for me. The types and antitypes that we see in this study that we'll do over the next few days, we will see God speaking to us as his remnant, the remnant that he's preparing for a victory that is unparalleled, but that Satan is going to seek to try to prevent any way that he possibly can. You and I want in our personal journey to know Jesus as our Savior and also to know the direction that he is leading us. So I want to go into the next chapter, which is chapter number two, Ancient and Modern Israel Paralleled. And uh, the title chapter is at the bottom of the page and then goes over to the next page. That's computers for you. They're supposed to help you and sometimes they make life really aggravating. Testimonies to Ministers, page 89, quoted in the first paragraph, says, The experience of Israel referred to in the above words of the Apostle and is recorded in the 105th and 106th Psalm contains lessons of warnings that the people of God in these last days especially need to study. I urge that these chapters be read at least once every week. So when was the last time you read the 105th and the 106th Psalm? Well, the... As I, I, I appreciate that. I recognize that. Ellen White talks about an hour every day on the, you know, reflecting on the life of Christ and the, and the last final scenes of the life of Christ. Absolutely, I agree. But it does tell us it's important, and I think that's probably the key element. Of course, it's just the most important thing is raising children, feeding church. Each time, this is the most important uh-huh. thing. Yep. And for that day, it was. Exactly. And it might also be for some of those people and the issues that they're dealing with. But I do think we could stand to read those passages, don't you? So let's do that right now. Take your Bibles and let's look at Psalm 105. And, and say, all right, why would Ellen White make that statement? What is it that she's trying to help us to, to look at? These warnings, I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. That's, you know what? I, I so believe in, in uh, memorizing and, and, and I need to do more of it. I really do. Um, it's such a powerful thing. Anyway, Psalm 105. Let's read it, Psalm 105. And uh, it's 45 verses long, so we may not get through it all. But let's get through a little bit of it and get a little bit of a perspective on it here, okay? And let's go around the room and read it. I think that's going to be the easy way. I'm going to start with Dennis over here. I'm going to go across this way, and we're going to go down like that, down that way, and back around the back uh, side. If you don't happen to have a Bible, then just pass to the next person. But De- um, Yeah, go ahead and read two verses. That works for me. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Um, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. 
Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Okay. Remember his marvelous works that he had done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth, all the seed of Abraham the soul, and the children of Jacob his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are all the year. He remembers his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath is for Isaac. He confirmed his trade as a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Very good. Verse 11. Yeah, that's okay. All right. Continue on if you would. When they were but a few men in number, they very few and strangers in them. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. You better finish that one. He suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, you reproved kings for their sakes. To, to the end of 15. Saying, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Okay. Verse 16, please. Over he called for a female in the land. He destroyed all the provisions of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with feathers. He was laid in irons. Okay, that's a good place to stop. Until the, until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and raised him, and he was the ruler of the people, and of the He made him lord of his house, and ruler of all his substance, to bind his prince at his pleasure, and teach his centers, send centers wisdom, senators wisdom. All right, verse twenty-three. Who's got a Bible back there? Great. Israel also came into Egypt and they could sojourn in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart and hate his people to deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron from being a chosen. Gonna come back up to you, Dennis. They showed his signs among them and wandered in the land of Ham. He sent Going, Dennis. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. Okay, uh, Maron, verse 29. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frog, even in the chambers of their king. Okay, we're doing good. We're going to go all the way to 45 here. Keep going, this to you. He spake and they came longer, flies and lice and all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and splendid fire in their land. He struck down their bonds and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. Spoke and locusts and grasshoppers without number. Ate up every green thing in their land. Ate up their produce of their soil. Then he struck down all the firstborn in their land. The first fruit of all their land. Okay. They bought also the silver and gold, and there was not one evil person among their tribe. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear thing fell upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and the waters rushed out. He ran, they ran in the dry places like the river. For he remembered his holy promise in Abraham and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness, 
and gave them to him, gave them the lands for Judah, and they inherited the remainder of the people. Read verse 35 as well. That they might observe his statutes and keep his laws, praise you the Lord. What do you get out of that? Short history. I'm sorry? A short history of the essence. Okay, exactly right. Um, what else do you get out of it? Okay, so the history helps to remind the people of what God does when He's leading His people and the kinds of ex um, difficulties that they face and yet how God helps them to overcome that. And when you come to the end of the chapter, He then says, that they might absorb, observe his statutes and keep his laws. God is wanting to prepare his people to stand for what's right. I heard of a young lady just this week, and I hear this story, uh, these kinds of stories, you hear them as well. But our church members, your brothers and sisters, maybe you face the same kinds of challenges in your life are having to make decisions all the time about how they're going to relate to the world around them. How are they going to live in this world that does not understand the world they're in? I, I should say the belief that they have in the Word of God in this world in which they live. A young lady who wanted to participate in sports. And she, had, she was doing uh, exceedingly well, and they really appreciated her skills that she was contributing to this, this sport. But in order to be able to, um, to do this, she knew that there was going to be a challenge down along the line when she was going to have to make a decision about whether to participate on Sabbath or not. And she made it clear to the people that she was um, training with and working with and her coaches and everybody else that she would not participate on Sabbath. Well, you know what happens from this. They come down finally to the time, and then she looks at the schedule of the events that are coming up and, and, and all, and she sees that her name is on the list to participate on Sabbath. She said, I told you I wasn't going to do that. And they said, look, you've got no choice. You, we don't have, actually, it wasn't a sport. I, I was thinking of somebody else. She was actually going to participate in a theatrical event. And, um, and she was going to be one of the leads in, in this theatrical event. Now, I'm not getting into all of the, all of those dynamics and all that kind of stuff. But to me, the important thing was here's a young person who's trying to live their lives, but they're having to come face to face with these kinds of issues. And she had to make a decision whether or not she was going to then perform. She said, look, I warned you that I was going to do this, and now you've scheduled these things. And they said, sorry, that's the way it is. You've got to be there. And she prayed about it, and she realized that God was in charge of her life. And make a long story short, as she came to that, she had to come to them one day and said, I'm sorry, I'm out. And you know, she did that with tears, because you know, if anything you've ever prepared for, and, and you learned your lines in this case, and all the kinds of things that, that she had done, 
and she came face to face with whether or not she was going to stand up for God and live for, live for Him. This is the kind of thing that, that the psalmist is talking about here. This experience here is asking us whether or not we trust God to do what He did for the children of Israel so many years ago to do also for you and for me today. The movements that the, of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt parallel our own in significant ways. And are we prepared to say, all right, that God who parted the Red Sea, that God who brought the ten plagues, that God who delivered them out of, of Egypt, that God who gave them food in the wilderness, that God who met them on, the, on uh, Mount Sinai, and the, that God who taught them in the sanctuary, is he going to stand up for me still today? That's what God is trying to help to prepare us for in our time today. A type is more clearly defined in this chapter, so I want you to look at it uh, just for a moment. It's at the uh, bottom of page 8, more or less. I know there's a slight shift in, in your paging. But if you look there, this is what it says. By way of example, by way of figure, but these things occurred to them typically. All this kept happening to them with a figurative meaning. Type is defined as a figure, emblem, or a symbol. A symbol or figure of something to come, a pattern. Um, it's not a literal, literal representation of something um, in, in the sense that the lamb, um, that Christ is going to be a lamb, but it is a literal representation of a spiritual fact. Does that make sense? The type is trying to give us an understanding of a spiritual principle, a spiritual fact, something that, that we need to recognize. One of the things we'll talk about along the way is about the midnight deliverance. Do you know what Ellen White says about our deliverance when it comes to the end of time? What does she say? It's going to be at midnight, right? So there's your literal fact of the deliverance of the children of Israel at midnight translating into the final movement of the Adventist church or the Advent movement, that's probably the better way to put that, of the Advent movement, and I do believe the Adventist church will be that movement, so don't misunderstand me. But that there's a lot more that goes with it than just an hour of time. But recognizing from that that the God who delivered his, his people at midnight out of Egypt is going to do the same thing again for you and for me. That's what that type coming over into antitype. You and I are the antitype. That's a nice theological word. But the symbol, the symbolism that is there in that type translates to us and establishes that kind of information for us. On the uh, top of page 8, I marked this statement because I wanted to share its significance um, with you. It's just before the section that says the sp uh, spirit of prophecy. You see that? You all with me? 
It's, um, it's on page um, 10, actually. It would be page 10. I'm sorry, I said 9. It's page 10 at the top of the page. I saw 9 at the top and realized it was before that. And this is, uh, this is uh, the, the section. It says, Just as the Lord purged the Exodus movement by shaking out the rebels, so He will purge modern Israel of its rebels by shaking or spewing them out. In these two parallel movements, the Lord does not call the faithful out in order to purify the church, but He purges or shakes out the rebels. Do you begin to see how these types come over into the anti-type and help us to avoid the dangers and the confusions that are out there today? I had a lady come to a church that I pastored a number of years ago, long years ago, long before Kalamazoo. And... Um, in, in that church, this lady came, and she was coming to teach us about education, Christian education. And there were some members there that had uh, latched on to her um, through some connection. I don't remember what that connection was. She was kind of an independent person, but she had a perspective on Christian education. And they were kind of looking at that, wanting to make their school the best Christian education institution that it could be. Now, you can't fault them for that, right? I mean, that's, that's what you want to do. And so they invited this lady to come. They invited other people to come as well, and, and, but this particular time, this lady came. And she came over, and she shared her perspective and so on, and was beneficial. She had some good ideas and some interesting ideas. And she went back to her home after that, and as a pastor, I more or less dismissed that. But along the way, I started to hear some things. About a year went by, and I started to hear her name again. And then somebody approached me and said, you know, Pastor, we'd really like her to come here uh, again and to share with us. But then somebody else came to me and said, you know, Pastor, you need to look at this real carefully. I mean, I'm busy as a pastor. I'm not going around and investigating everybody that happens to show up. But, you know, when somebody comes and says, you know, you want, might, might want to look at this a little more closely. They said, you know what, I, I think that uh, I've, I've been hearing that she believes that the Adventist Church is Babylon. And so I got on the phone and I called her and I asked her, what she believed in relationship to this. And to her credit, you know, some people want to be deceptive, they lie. Somehow lying and deception kind of seem to go well together, right? But anyway, she didn't lie about that fact. When I asked her, I said, what do you believe about it? She said, well, I, I think the Adventist Church is actually Babylon and that we've got to come out of Babylon. And I said, well, you know what I'm going to say to you and that is that this would not be the right place for you to be, you know. And I'm not inviting you to come to our church under the current circumstances. I do, grab one of those sheets there so you'll catch where we are. If you're early for the next class, you'll get that material Am as well. Early? Yeah. Sorry. No, no, you're all right. You're all right. Thanks. No worries. So um, anyway, I, uh, 
I told her, I said, I'm sorry, but this just isn't going to work. There are people like this that have this idea. But you know, if you and I will recognize the way God has led his church in the past and recognize some of these details, you see, this is where types and antitypes become a surety for us. Those details begin to say, wait a minute, I, I remember that the, the fact is the church, when, when uh, the children of Israel came out in this difficult situation, the rebels were the ones who left, not the people of God were taken out of the church. The church is going to make its way through. We'll look at that more in depth. But that's the reality that you and I face. Now, let me tell you what happened in that situation. I told her that she couldn't come. She couldn't use the church, and so she, she didn't come to the church. But some of the church members on the side that had, were not prepared and not ready for that came, I mean, invited her to their home. The next thing I heard is she's getting everybody together and she's baptizing, she's unbaptizing them from the Seventh-day Adventist Church and baptizing them into Jesus Christ alone and starting her own movement. And then it wasn't long before she vanished off the scenes and so did they. So pretty soon what happens to them, they're out of the church. Unfortunately, because we have not prepared ourselves and not solidified ourselves in the movement that God has raised up, we are susceptible to a lot of these things that come around us. Remember that He, Jesus, purges or shakes out the rebels, but He keeps His church moving ahead. Now that's part of the way that He works for us. This is a parallel movement. You and I are in a parallel movement. In the, uh, and the Exodus movement, they had a prophet. Am I right? What is the parallel, parallel movement uh, aspect for you and me? What is it? It's going to have a prophet. Who's that prophet? We have Ellen White, right? I just heard again. I read it myself, actually. <laughs> but I, I read again. About, uh, about some people over in Europe who claim to be Seventh-day Adventists. They claim to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm not going to any more detail than that. But these individuals have taken on all kinds of ideas about what they think we should believe as Seventh-day Adventists, including the way we should relate to these other issues going on around us that I spoke of in the, in the uh, Methodist Church, and the challenge is there, and they say, we should, we should be going along with that. We should accept all of that. <coughs> and then I asked myself, I said, so where, is it, where are they in their understanding of where the spirit of prophecy fits into this? Well, they don't believe in the spirit of prophecy. And I said, well, yeah, that makes sense. God led his people out of Egypt with a prophet. The parallel for you and me is that the spirit of prophecy is still present in the remnant movement that he has preparing for the end. You want to be ready for the end of time. You want to be solid in your relationship with Jesus. You want to be solid in your understanding of the, uh, of the tools that he's brought into his church, the, the foundations that he's built to make sure that the church is very, very strong. 
In volume five of the testimonies, Ellen White says, I have been shown that the spirit of the world is fast leavening the church. You are following the same path as did ancient Israel. Oh, how I do wish that Ellen White was here today. If she could make that statement a hundred years ago, what in the world would she say today? Given the kinds of things that we see going on, you and I need to recognize that we are repeating history today. And we're seeing it, though, in marked ways. In the spirit of prophecy, here's the good news, the spirit of prophecy has already told us these things were coming. We should not be surprised in the, in the kinds of things that are happening to us because Ellen White said that's exactly what would happen. When you read Great Controversy and you see the, the, uh, the chapters where she speaks about the false revivals and the kinds of things that we see even happening in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today, we recognize that prophecy is being fulfilled. Did the children of Israel coming out of Egypt have any problem with false prophets? Do they have any false prophets in their, in their group? Oh, yeah. They sure did. We're going to look at some of them. What was the kind of experience they had? How did the church handle that situation? How did God lead his people in dealing with those circumstances? What was his, and not only his counsel, but what was his direction? What did he seek for them to be able to do? All right. I want to get into... No, I'm out of time. That's a good place for us to stop. We're going to talk about the two movements in prophecy next time, which I've given you that material as well, and then I will add some more to it as well. Here's what we're going to do. We've got, there's about 35 chapters in this material. As I told some of you that have come in a little later, make sure that you've all had a chance to sign that sheet. And the reason I want you to sign that sheet is when I get back to the conference office, I'm going to make sure that you get a hard copy, and by hard I mean paper copy versus electronic, copy of this material in its entirety as uh, Taylor G. Bunch put it together. Then you can continue to study it on your own. I'm introducing you to it because I want to encourage you with the value of this study and the depth of this study. There are 35 chapters. We're not going to get through all 35, especially when we've only looked at two today and being able to look at that. But we're going to hit some of the highlights of the experience of the children of Israel coming out, wandering in the wilderness, facing Jesus at Mount Sinai, recognizing from there as God led them into the next part of what he was leading them to, as they came to the borders of the promised land, what was their experience and how does that parallel our own? What does it teach me about how God is going to help me through this time? And does it also remind me of the fact that the challenge is not superficial, but it is in depth. You and I must know what God wants us to do in preparation for his return. And that's what we're going to continue to study. We'll look at it in depth. We're starting to get into the heart and the depth of this, but we'll look at key chapters in this study, and then the, uh, when I get back, I'll provide you with that whole material. The chapters that we go over here, I will provide you with. 
and you'll be able to have that to follow along with me and also to be able to go back and study more um, on your own time as well. Thank you so much for being here. Nice to uh, get acquainted with you and have a good rest of your day. Let's have a prayer as we conclude this, this afternoon. Thank you, Father, for types and antitypes. Lord, that sounds like a meaningless theological term. But the truth of the matter is, these types have been given to us that we may be able to more fully understand how to live as the antitype of the Exodus movement in the final Advent movement, the remnant church, just before Jesus comes. Continue to lead us in our study. Teach us more about you and how to live today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.